0: So you went from being an only child to having 11 children of your own.
1: I did use birth control.
0: <laughs> wow. And... If you've ever thought it's too late for me, then this episode is especially for you. Alison Renault graduated from Harvard University in US space policy at the age of 50. She has also worked with NASA, is a gymnast coach to Olympic hopefuls, a number one Amazon author.
1: When you hear this part, You'll know that if I can do it, you can do it. People are priority. I've just always kept that as my mission statement in my mind. Women can have it all, but we can't have it all at the same time. I was married 33 years. He fell in love with someone else. You know, we can't really live wounded. But I just couldn't quit because my heart was like, I've got to keep moving forward. Uh, but the thing I believe is that every woman can have it.
0: And she's also a pilot, a Juilliard pianist, and horsewright. How? Welcome to Daring Forward, where we feature ordinary women doing extraordinary things and learn practical lessons and action steps to help you live courageously. I'm your host, Sahar Today. Now, if you're ready, let's dare forward. If you've ever thought it's too late for me, then this episode is especially for you. Today, I'm joined by an incredible guest, where we talk about how you, in fact, can have it all, but maybe not all at once. Alison Renault is the biological mother to 11 children who graduated from Harvard University in U.S. space policy at the age of 50. She has also worked with NASA, is a gymnast coach to Olympic hopefuls, a number one Amazon author, internationally sought speaker, and successful entrepreneur. Oh, and she's also a pilot, a Juilliard pianist, and horse rides. I just have one question for her. How? Allison? thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and the show today. We are so excited to have you here. And actually, one of the things I wanted to really thank you just off the bat from the beginning of the episode is that I have you to thank for being here because you've had such an incredible impact on my life. Um, when we first met, I saw you and met you at a conference and I heard your story. And I remember one of the things that touched me the most was listening to you it reminded me that I needed to just slow down a little bit. I think at the time I felt this need to keep continue rushing and pushing to wanting to grow my business. And listening to your story kind of took all that anxiety away. So I have you to thank for that.
1: Thank you, Sahar. It was a pleasure to meet you in London a few years ago.
0: Um, I think a good place for us to start would be... Maybe let's take it back before you've had all these amazing and incredible accomplishments. What was life like for you? And um, yeah, just tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, I when you hear this part, you'll know that if I can if I can do it, you can do it. I was born in a very small uh, farm town. You might call it a village, but it only had 250 people total. And that probably included the pets. Um, wow. We didn't have... <laughs> Uh, you know, stoplights or a big grocery store. Uh, one thing that we did have as I grew up, you know, around horses and cattle and farming was it instilled in me an incredible work ethic. I wasn't afraid to get my hands dirty. I wasn't afraid to feed the horses. I wasn't afraid to muck out their stalls. And um, my mother was really great in teaching me how to dress up and be a classy woman. At the same time, she took me all the way to the bottom and made me do all the, the dirty work, too. And it's served me well uh, as I've gone around the world to all the different continents. Because you know, everywhere you go, the cultures are different. And what she taught me uh, really has helped me fit in no matter where I go. And just to appreciate. It also prepared me to do a lot of things well. For instance, uh, you have to be on the track team, the basketball team, the cheerleading team. You have to serve in the academic uh, competition. So it really gave me a
0: well-rounded upbringing. Sure. And did you grow up with any siblings or were you an only child?
1: Interesting. Uh, you know, I have 11 biological children. Um, I was an only child Wow! in my family. It seems like it, with my journey, almost every time I've started something new, I have zero experience in that particular area. Um so you'll see as, as we go along in this podcast that uh, I was kind of thrown into a swimming pool, not knowing how to swim each time and just had to figure it out. And so it kind of made me, keeps, keeps you humble, keeps you dependent on your friends and your faith and your family.
0: Wow. So you went from being a single child, an only child, to having 11 children of your own. I mean, to me, that is Completely mind-blowing. Like, how did you end up with 11 children? Was it something that you were intentional about? I only planned to have two children in my marriage.
1: And we had nine surprises, you might say. Wow. And I did use birth control. (laughs) You did use. I guess it was just, I did. And And it didn't uh, work. Except for the two that were planned. Mm -mm. So uh, it's been quite an adventure. The sons were number one and number three. And then my daughters were number two and then I had eight girls in a row.
0: You know, this is over a span of how many years? The well the youngest is seventeen and the oldest is thirty-nine.
1: So you can do the math.
0: That's not a long time at all. Like that that's mm-hmm. okay. I was
1: I think I was pregnant and nursing for a long, long time.
0: Oh my goodness. So like what is going through your mind as you're having baby number one, then number two, then three, four, all the way to eleven. Like what is Like, how did you cope with that, and kind of like, what were you thinking at the time?
1: For me, I don't use the word cope because Mm. uh, I I really was all in as a mother. I we didn't have a we had very little income, but I felt that my most important job was to be a great mom to those children. I homeschooled them through uh, sixth grade. Then I put them in public school in seventh grade. I tried to build a really strong academic base, ethical base, faith base. Um, hard work. And so I was, I was all in and I decided I would find happiness in folding underwear. I would have, find happiness. You realize how many socks there are when you're doing the laundry with that. (laughs) So many kids, like just trying to match socks. So I decided just to, to make it fun. Also, while I was homeschooling the children, I also tried to identify their gifts. Like if someone wanted to be an ice skater or someone wanted to be a swimmer, or someone wanted to be in gymnastics, or someone wanted to be a baseball player, I did my very best to make sure that they were also developing the gifts that are inside of them. What I found was when you got a child hooked on something they love, they love to get up in the morning. They love to, to get school done so they can go to their, you know, their extracurricular activity. And it I think people, whether they're two years old or twenty years old or sixty years old, we've got to do what we love. It, it's our fuel. And I found that with the kids. So I also, you know, developed them not just in academics but also in athletics. And if they were, some of them were good at, you know, art, some were great violinists or great piano players. So I just made sure that they were, and again, it sounds like, you know, it was a a lot of finances, but it was just a really, it was a struggle. But it seems like everything falls together for kids. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Like there's a higher power that's always with you, uh, helping provide and, and guide. And I had to trust in that. Every step of the way, but because of that, all my kids are extremely ambitious. They're all—they were all educated before I was, with uh, their bachelor's, their master's degrees, and um, they just have a zest for life. They have a love for success. When they're in athletics, they—they they fail, they lose, they win, and they—they they become competitive. And whether we like it or not, it's a competitive world. If you're interviewing for a job or trying to sell a house, or Whatever, If you're in school, it, it is a competitive world. And I think putting them in those extracurricular activities as a, as in their youth um, really prepared them for life.
0: It's mm-hmm. so good for me to hear this because I'm at the stage where my kids are in like primary school or junior school. Um, and mm-hmm. we're going through that now. Like my kids, you, you've got the academics and the after school clubs and finding that spark that's in them and finding mm-hmm. a way for them to kind of shine I really agree with you on that point. Um, Where did you get that? Raise your kids to do what they love—philosophy, if you like. I feel
1: like every single human being was created differently, and there's a plan for every person's life. And I kind of want to get in the groove of that for each one of my kids, so that they could grow grow up, you know, doing what they love. Because if you love what you do, it's not really work. Mm -hmm. And another thing, um, I think as a as a woman, women can have it all, but we can't have it all at the same time.
0: Yeah,
1: we can try. Yeah, uh, but it's better sometimes to live life in chapters as a woman. You might be all in as a mother for a while, and then maybe you're a businesswoman, or maybe in, in some cases you're in business and education, educated in business first, and then you have your children later. But um, you know, we can't stack it on top of each other. Sometimes we have to live it out in a linear chapters to to be successful.
0: Yeah, that's so good that that you mentioned that. And I think, like I said earlier as well, that that was one of the biggest takeaways for me, listening to your story, especially because we are consistently hearing messages of you can have it all. And especially nowadays, like with the internet and social media and like everything is so accessible and easy, I feel like my generation, we're having to deal with the overwhelm of choice. Like you can literally do anything you want right now. And it was really freeing to hear you say that, that actually I just dedicated an entire chapter of my life to motherhood. And that was that. We could all take a page from that and learn from that. Mm -hmm. So how did you then know that you were ready to transition? Like, when did you know that your season had changed?
1: That's a great question. I think inside of us, uh, when it's time to transition to a new chapter, we start getting restless. We start getting hungry for more. We wonder if this is all there is mm-hmm. in life. And for me, I just kind of wanted to, when you talk to a lot of great entrepreneurs, from if you talk to Elon Musk, or if you talk to uh, Larry Page, who started Google, or Steve Jobs, all of their ideas came to them. They were somewhere at some point where uh, they were asleep at night and and the idea came to them. That's That's kind of what I look for is this, idea that comes to me that's so overwhelming I just can't shake it. And I've learned to follow instincts. If you talk to any great businessman, I've interviewed a lot of them, they're even instinctive about where they park their car. They'll just kind of listen to their gut about everything and they practice all the time. And this has been a a skill that I've developed that works well. So I started feeling restless like I had 10 children. It's like, is this all? Is this is this it? And you feel this feeling of of empty, mm. hungry. I can't I don't know how to explain it. And uh, I remember waking up in the middle of the night in October of 2000, overwhelmingly knowing I was supposed to start a gymnastics program. A gymnastics program, that was supposed to be Olympic quality. And <laughs> I was thinking to wow. myself, interesting because I've never done gym I've never done gymnastics. Okay. I've never coached gymnastics. And I certainly have okay. zero cash. But I have learned to say yes to those odd visitations or feelings that you get. I've learned just to kind of surrender is a good way to put it to the, to the, to, and just say yes and maybe just take a few steps forward. I took a few steps forward. I checked on what it would cost mm-hmm. to open something like that, and it would be about a quarter of a million U.S. dollars. So I'm like, wow. it's so impossible. I may as well just try. Hold on, research, hold on, hold on, hold on. Sorry, can
0: I interrupt yeah, you yeah. right there? You just said something amazing. <laughs> you just said, yeah. it is so impossible that I might as well just try. How, how do you even think like that is my question to you? Most people would think it's so impossible, I might as well not try.
1: I don't want to leave this life with any regrets. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if I don't try, I'd re- honestly rather try to start the gymnastics program and nothing happen than never try it all in wonder in my 70s or 80s. I really have an a inner philosophy of saying yes. Uh, yes to everything. Yes, Sahar wants me to do a podcast. Yes. I want to go rescue Afghans. Yes. I want to start a gymnastics program. Yes. I want to go to Harvard. Yes. I, I say yes to just about everything that's ethical or moral. Uh, everything. And it's, it's because it, it builds relationships often. And those relationships are what were the miracles like, is your friendships. Mm. And so the yes is introduce you to people through those relationships. Something may come of it down the road or, you know, you can be a blessing to someone or they can be a blessing to you. But that is what happened, actually. I, I received a phone call probably five or six days after this epiphany, whatever you want to call it, about this gymnastics thing from a man in Chicago, Illinois, a large city, probably 12 hours drive from me. And he said, you don't know me. He said, but about a year ago, you helped my son through a crisis. He is like a brand new person. We don't know what happened to him, but uh, we are just, his mother and I are so grateful. And we just want to send you like some money to help other children. And I said, okay. And he said, "Um, I'm vice president of United Airlines. (laughs) And I thought, okay, so I'm going to get a check for you know, 500 US dollars or 1000 or something like that. But (laughs) I actually got a check for over 300,000 US dollars from this man. Whoa! I honestly, Sahar, had probably never seen more than $300 at one time in my life. And I knew it's like a feeling like I'm in the groove of what I'm supposed to do with my life. This, this must be right. I didn't, I didn't have to get a bank loan. I was open from the day I had the feeling I was supposed to do this until the day I opened was only 10 days. Now I open and I don't even know how to teach a cartwheel. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But, um, a previous relationship I had was, a was a gymnastics coach and he heard that I wanted to do gymnastics differently. See, gymnastics has not been a really good sport for a long time, not just recently what you've heard, but It's always been a really harsh sport on girls. Mm -hmm. And I decided I wanted to do it a kind way. Why can't you inspire girls instead of make them afraid of you and bully them into being great? Because girls, when they they care, they'll give you their heart and soul and do their best. So he wanted to, he was an Olympic coach and he wanted to do it the Mm -hmm. right way. So here I had the suddenly someone next to me that was a mentor taught me everything they know. We are still running this business 22 years later. And we have trained thousands and thousands of uh, national world champions. We've also taught girls, get your education, work hard, speak up for yourself. Don't let people run over you. Uh, You can be anything in life. You can be a senator. You can be a parliamentarian. You can be a surgeon. You can be an attorney. You can be a great mother. You can do anything you want with your life. So in the meantime, while I was teaching girls to be great gymnasts, I was teaching them to be great champions in life. And right now I'm training 500 gymnasts uh, every day. And every day we spend five minutes teaching them these qualities that will make them great, great women when they grow up. Oh, my gosh. Because gymnastics is going to be over one day for them. But being a a woman is for the rest of their life.
0: That is so inspiring. My goodness. When you mentioned that this individual, the vice president of United Airlines, uh, reached out to you. What capacity w- were you helping and working with children? Because you mentioned that he helped you helped his son.
1: That was it. Uh, you know, in our life, people come mm. across our path. Uh, they are often in trouble. They also often are in need. It could be your neighbor. It can be a friend. And if you're if you have that feeling inside, you should help someone. You just I just go mm. do it. And this particular person was had lost their job. Was really suffering from a lot of depression. And I just took the time to help this individual get back on their feet, give them hope and, you know, kind of brush them off and give them a fresh start. That was really about it. Stayed in touch with them. I I didn't do anything different than what you would do. But we think that we're going to meet someone glorious and be discovered and become
0: something great when often it's it's uh, wrapped up in a. in a a person who needs help. The distinction that I wanna make is what you're saying is that whenever you feel Mm -hmm. compelled, you sense that compassion, that empathy inside of you, always act on that if you can and you're able. And then beautiful things can emerge from that. And it's also going back to you saying how the magic is in the relationships that you build. And it's not to say Mm -hmm. that we should help people with an expectation of something in return. Mm -hmm. It's to just freely give and surrender.
1: No. Mm -hmm. And of course you get, you get betrayed, Mm -hmm. you get burned. We all do. Um, But you can't get bitter. You have to forgive and you have to keep moving forward and you can't allow your, your heart to close up towards humanity. Because uh, I had a teacher once say to me, people are priority. And I've just always kept that as my mission statement in my mind that people are priority. And so when I feel, and I know each and every, I know you have Sahar and I know your listeners have had a feeling I should text someone or a a feeling someone's in trouble, or I should check on this person. And then we brush it off and think, oh, that was just me. Nine times out of 10, they were in trouble or they needed encouragement.
0: So good. So you're a very intuitive woman. Do you think being an intuitive person is something that can be taught?
1: I think uh, it's inside of every single human being. And sometimes Uh, we're so logical and we're so smart and we're so sharp, uh, all the women are that I know, that we can tend to brush off this skill small voice that's inside of us. I think it's very important to stay in touch with that. And people can call it what they want. It's something that that I don't think people, we should ignore. And women have it Mm -hmm. in abundance.
0: In a day and time like this, where... There mm-hmm. is so much noise and so much distractions and social media and so many other people's voices coming at us consistently, being a woman, being a mother, like you're always juggling so many different things. What are some things that we can do to kind of turn up the volume on that still small voice? What are some pra- like practical things you can do?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So just so you know, I am 60 years old. And uh, so I've been practicing this for a while. I think it's really important to have a great morning routine. So I wake up every morning and the first question I ask myself is, Allison, are you going to be a weenie or a hot dog today? <laughs> are you going to be weak or <laughs> are you going to be strong? Because we all wake up kind of like, well, I just want to put the pillow over mm-hmm. my head and go back to sleep, right? Uh, it's really be much better just to lay here and play on my phone. But you got to ask yourself, you know, are you going to let the day attack you or are you going to attack the day? So I decide I'm going to attack the day. The first thing I do, I always did before the kids, um, well the kids were young, I only have one left at home now, uh, was I always read inspirational material. The very first thing, Mm -hmm. inspirational material. For me, it's the Bible. Uh, For me, it can be a podcast. It could be a YouTube. But just something to fire up my soul for the day and give it hope that we can conquer anything that's going to come at us. As soon as I do that for 15, 30 minutes, I go to the kitchen. I pour an energy drink and I go for a run. I run, um, in us that I run two to three miles. Uh, that would be what about 5k uh, in the morning. And while I'm running, I'm either listening to really upbeat music or another podcast or something that just keeps me, you know, rolling. So when I get back to the house and again, I am a runner. And the reason I run is because it's much faster to put my shoes on and just run out the door than it is to pack a bag and go to the gym. I I promise you I will talk myself out of going to the gym. I just I just, you know, I'm innately lazy, she yeah. says. <laughs> we all are. And I'm better at just I, I rather just put the shoes on, go for the run, get it over with. And I I've done it consistently since I was 16 years old. Wow. This little routine. Uh I did it through all my pregnancies and towards the end of your pregnancy, you know, like your stomach is like on your knees, basically, <laughs> you can't tie your shoes. You just, I just would hold it up with my hands and you know walk as as quickly as I could. Yeah. Uh, you know, like fast walk. And I can take this particular uh, routine all over the world. So it doesn't matter if I wake up in Uganda or if I wake up in Japan or South America or Australia or any continent in the world. Even sometimes you come off a flight and you're at a layover for a few hours in Amsterdam or somewhere. I still do the run inside the airport. Like if you skip it one time, it's easy to skip it the second time. That's all I have to say. I don't care if it's raining outside, if it's snowing. I just, just go and I just do it. And it's really, so the morning routine for me has really been a, a key to success. Do I like it? No, nope. not every day, but I think it, it gives you a, a, it gets a mindset of a champion all day long. And you know you got it and conquered the elements. You conquered your 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 selfish, lazy self. (laughs) And am I perfect every day? Do I get everything done every day like I should? No, but I've learned that uh, failures and is part of life, right? Yeah, I love that.
0: And um, I think the thing that stands out to me hearing you say that is you found a way to make working out and having a morning routine really simple so that you can actually do it every day. Like I think a lot of us get hung up on Mm -hmm. trying to do things perfectly or in a particular way that someone else said, and um, you kind of keep starting and failing because you just haven't taken that as a principle and applied it to your own life because we're also different and we have very individual lives. And I think there's a a lot of wisdom in what you're saying and just making it uh, bespoke to who you are. Okay, so Let's talk about your next transition, which is owning a gymnastics mm-hmm. coaching business to now studying at Harvard mm-hmm. um, at the age of 50. Yeah. So That's right. what happened there in that transition?
1: Yeah. So, so same thing where I began to feel mm-hmm. restless. When you, when you raise a lot of children, and any mother will know this, you, you yeah. almost forget who you are. You are so spending your time selflessly investing in your children or your husband or your house duties or all those things or making money that you, you just kind of, you just forget about your identity. It just goes to the wayside and all your Mm -hmm. dreams are on a shelf. And I began to feel like, wow, who am I? Is this all I'm going to do my whole life is just raise kids and, and coach gymnastics. Like there's got to be more Mm -hmm. than just, just this. And not that it's just this. It's just that for me, I felt like there was more. And my desire was to, I had a big impact on this planet. I wanted to do something that mattered. I wanted my life to mean something. But at 50, I, I wanted to wait until the idea came to me. Because you can't make a mistake and go the wrong direction. You don't have time for mistakes at my age. And so I waited until it came to me on a morning run in January of 2011 to go to Harvard University and get my master's. I had just finished my bachelor's degree. And I had the same feeling... Every transition for me is impossible. So this was, I don't, I, I still have seven kids at home. I live 1,500 miles from Boston, Massachusetts, where Harvard is. I have zero money. And I know for a fact, I'm not smart enough to run with that crowd, that elite crowd. But I couldn't shake it. And it just wouldn't go away. No matter how hard I tried, it just was in my face, and my heart all the time. So the only thing I really could do was... Take the first step. I borrowed frequent flyer points from a friend to fly to Boston, and I borrowed hotel points to spend the <laughs> night. And I flew into Boston wow. and my flight got in at midnight. I did not have enough money for two nights for a hotel. So I actually slept by the subway on my suitcase as a pillow uh, until 6 a.m. Again, that's what growing up on a farm helps. Like I didn't care. I didn't think I'd like, go oh, poor me. I was so excited. It's like The subway opens at six. I'm going to be on that first train to to Harvard. And I dropped off my um, suitcase at the hotel. And I I went to meet, meet the dean of the school, international. I wanted to get an international degree, international law, international relations. I just wanted to do something international. And I told this very strong woman, hey, you know, poor me. I have seven kids. I'm not really smart. I don't have any money. You know, I gave her all the reasons why I shouldn't do it. And she like got her finger out and just put it in my face, like a strong midwife, you know. <laughs> like, like, she was like, You will find a way to fly here every week. You will do this. You will find a way to pay for it because it will change your life. And she believed in me more than I believed in myself. And I suddenly believed I could <laughs> just because of her. Well, I went back home. I applied for private scholarships. And, you know, the first person I, Approached about this uh, was a businessman who gave out scholarships, and he said, "Yeah, I want to help you." And he he kept his end of the bargain; he paid for my entire uh, education. I graduated um, at the top of my class; I had straight A's all through Harvard, and ended up um, studying United States space policy, NASA, uh, and it became one of the top research projects of Why am why, um, why did you study that? Well, I had finished all of my classes, so I think I may may have taken eight or ten. I can't remember for sure. I'd have to look on my transcript, but I had made, you know, straight A's. And I said to self, I said, "Self, now what? What's next? And I remembered that um, I've been a pilot for 40 years, by the way, an airplane pilot. So I love space and aviation and things like that. And it just kind of came to me. uh, That's the direction I should go. So I contacted a Harvard professor, a woman, and said, this is what I want to do. And she she basically put me in a NASA school, international school, and it was very difficult. But I met people from all over the world that were involved in international space agencies. And from there, I ended up in Washington, D.C., working at NASA headquarters. And the whole space, space industry just opened up to me. And I just kept saying yes to every little invitation. And it's navigated me to where I am today, which is, you know, meeting with leaders all over the world helping uh, emerging nations with their space and technology for their countries their k- connectivity and you know keynote speaking engagements i don't have a pr firm i'm not in a speakers bureau everything i do is just organic it just it just comes to me and i just say yes and then i i meet i meet the most amazing people i learn about i learn about amazing cultures incredible food incredible experiences and i just pinch myself sometimes about But the thing I believe is that every woman can have it or every human being. I'm not some special person that got squirted with an extra bit of, you know, dose of this or that. It's just that I, I wasn't afraid to say yes. I actually was afraid. I was afraid on everything. I was afraid to say yes on everything, but I just did it anyway, because I was desperate to change. I, I didn't want to live the life I was, I was in. I had hit bottom in so many areas of my life. My life was not a fairy tale whatsoever and it was like i had the fires of hell on my back if i went back where i came from my life would be destroyed and if i went forward maybe there was something for me so it was I for me and really all of a i can really relate to that
0: um and i feel like sometimes mm-hmm. the hardships that you face they're a gift in disguise mm-hmm. because i often find especially working with women i found that if you don't have that fire that's behind you sometimes um that's like It's easy to fall back to your comfort, but if you have nothing to fall back on, the only thing you have is to literally just move forward. And so would you say that right now, are you still someone who are you motivated by that kind of that fear um, or have your motivations changed as you've grown and you've seen success?
1: When it comes to failure, (laughs) I have a love-hate relationship with it, (laughs) right? Uh, I love failure because you learn, especially if you take responsibility for your failures. You know, it's really easy to shift the blame to, you know, your spouse or your this or that. But really, if you assess that, you know, you, you are where you are because of the decisions you've made or I've made, you know, even if it's a bad thing and people are treating you wrong, well, you know, I, I guess I let that happen to myself. So I've learned to first analyze myself. And and then the love part of failures is is that you can either lay around and waller in your depression, which I've had plenty of depression, where, you know, depressions yeah. can get so bad that you can't even get out of bed. And I've been there. You can lay there or you can get up and start living life one one step at a time. But I know what it feels like. And I can't say that I ever got out of those pits on my own. It was, it was friends that I would call. It was family. It was faith. It was all of it mixed together that got me where I am today. But um, failures has made me a better coach, a better mother, a better businesswoman, better at everything. But I've learned, uh, you know, when you work in the space industry, you can't fail. If you no. fail, someone's going to die. If you fail the Hubble telescope, you're going to waste millions and millions and millions of tax dollars. So the greatest thing about working with the NASA folks, and I love this this picture, I don't know if you can see it or not, but I, I wanted to show it to you in this podcast. It's one of my favorite pictures in my office. This is the Apollo 13 mission control. So Apollo 13, we'd already been to the moon and we had succeeded as NASA had, but Apollo 13 is when they had the explosion on the way to the moon and it was impossible to get the men back. Impossible. But uh, Gene Kranz, who's in his little white... Jacket here, sign this, and it wow. says, "You know, failure is not an option." Obviously, they had a failure, or you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't have been uh, so dangerous. But I guess in the end, uh, I never give up. Period. I will not give up. I learned that from my mother. I learned that from uh, being around Olympic people. I learned that from being around space people. I learned that if you never give up, come on, the breakthrough will come. Yeah, every time. It's, it's really true, and, and no one can yeah. stop you but yourself.
0: Wow. Tell me about mm-hmm. um, that time where you talked about you were depressed. Tell me about like the darkest point in your life. Mm-hmm. Why were you there? What caused it?
1: Okay, mm-hmm. just to be frank, I was married 33 years, and you know all the children were the same, the same man, but honestly, he, he wow. fell in love with someone else. I didn't want to leave because— I wanted to keep the kids together. I mean, it was really at that point, it was more about them than about me. So, but at the same time as a, as a woman, you take a lot of hits emotionally and you're wounded daily more than once uh, by your circumstances, that trauma and over time Mm. can really take a toll on your mental health, on your emotional health, on your physical health. Your performance is not very good in anything you're trying to do because, you know, we can't really live wounded I I just remember like being in in like I said in bed to the point it feels like there's an elephant sitting on your chest and you just can't lift yourself up. I remember uh, a couple of friends coming in and just grabbing me by the hands one day in the dark and saying, "We're going to dinner. We're taking you to dinner," and it was just like miraculous to have you know people like that in my life that believed in me when I was just in a bad place. I I'm not angry or bitter. Uh, at my and I and I had to get a divorce in 2014. So honestly, he really liked her for left her for probably 15 years, um, a long, long time. And you can imagine wow. what that can do to your psyche, right? But I kept putting one foot in front of the other. And the breakthrough came actually when I got my education at Harvard. He did end up marrying her uh, right after we got a divorce in 2014. And I'm really happy for him. If he's happy and She's happy, like, you just got to move on. You got to let it go or, you know, that bitterness can make you get really ill. Um, and I just use that really as a new launching pad. I had to start over financially completely. No place to live uh, in 2014. It's not that long ago. Uh, I, I didn't want to get into a big legal battle on alimony or child support or who got the kids, all that. I just was like, you know, the best thing I can do is no tanglement, no entanglement legally. And just move forward. So in that case, I had to start over completely. And now I own my own house and have started over and have a brand new life. Um, Probably that was the most depressing and victorious time of my life. But again, this is the father of my children. So I never want to, you know, throw someone under the bus. But that's just the facts. And I'm saying that because I know a lot of women go through it. But I found as I remove myself from toxic situations in situations where people are wounding you a lot, you can really grow a lot faster.
0: What would you say to yourself at that point when you were at your lowest, knowing what you know now? I wouldn't do anything different.
1: For some women, like if I had no kids, I probably would no. have been out in six months no. or a year, right? But I, I I, still would tell myself the same thing. I would get up every day. I still went for the run, even though I was depressed, even if it was slow. I still did it all. I still did the morning routine. It was just as yeah. <laughs> quick of a pace, um, I wouldn't change. I wouldn't change anything. I just kept on that consistent pattern of inspirational material, going for the run, making the list, trying to get it done every day, giving my best, and going to sleep. But there's a time when you feel a release that you're finished. But again, I think if I had less kids, I would move fast. If I was someone, if I was advising someone in that situation, yeah. I would have them move on a little
0: quicker. But uh, that, you know, in my situation, it was just a little bit more complicated. It sounds to me like you're someone who, especially for you to say that I wouldn't change anything, you speak well to yourself, like your inner voice to yourself. Would you say that you have self-compassion towards yourself? (laughs) No. (laughs) No.
1: I think that we, like you probably, or a lot of your listeners, we are so hard on ourselves every day. Like, I know. Right now, my hair's not exactly straight, and my necklace is probably crooked. And God, oh, look at this! I think we have a terrible uh, habit of talking down to ourselves all the time. I think it was my friends, and my faith, and that little voice inside of me that wasn't me, telling me you can do more. You were born to do great things. That it was it was outer it was external voices. It may be a book I was reading something but it wasn't coming from me, honestly. And um, I think
0: we're all like that and we have to work on that okay. all the time. When you went through the divorce, were you working at the time? Because mm-hmm. you mentioned that you didn't have anything. So how did you pull yourself out financially in that scenario?
1: You know, I live in America. I always was thinking about people that might live in, in, in countries where they don't have the opportunity that I might have. I would compare myself. How would a woman be if she was in a particular country where she might not have... Uh, access to work hard or make a good salary. And I just worked extra hard and, and I looked for opportunities to get in a house that was unusual, like, you know, for sale by owner or something like that. I, and I remember the first night my daughter, she was probably, I don't know, maybe thir- 12 or 13. The first night we spent the night in my first house, we slept on little swimming rafts like you buy for, you know, a $1 at the <laughs> dollar store. We called the dollar store. That's what we slept on for a while. Until we could pay for a bed and then a couch and then, you know, furniture, each little thing at a time. We just stayed, we stayed hopeful and happy. We were excited. (laughs) That's
0: beautiful. I want to take you back to the summer of 2021 when the horrific incident of the Taliban attacking Afghanistan took place. And you were involved in a rescue mission as part of the Explore Mars team involving a few young Afghani girls. Can you tell me more about that?
1: Thanks for asking. Um, I'm on a board of directors in Washington, D.C., and this particular organization is called Explore Mars. And we are advocating constantly with NASA and our our, um, government to continue human space exploration because it has kind of come to a halt. Well, every every May we have an annual conference and we decided we would invite the Afghan girls robotic team from Afghanistan these were girls whose, you know, fathers had been killed because they went to high school and wanted to pursue a higher education. Amazing young girls, and actually Elon Musk of SpaceX actually paid for all of their flights and all of their, their uh, travel expenses. He's an amazing, generous man. And these girls came to the conference, and I met them. And having had nine daughters, you know, I immediately connected and became really close friends with them. I want to say they were. Uh, maybe two years from graduating high school and they wanted to get scholarships in the United States. So we stayed in touch, you know, for a couple of years and was working on helping them uh, pursue their education in the United States because they wanted to go back to Afghanistan and make it a better place after they got their education. But in August of uh, 21, same thing. I woke up with that just overwhelming feeling that all these girls were in trouble and the team is bigger than just them. And it was just like mm-hmm. I couldn't shake it. And I'm thinking to myself, the same way you would feel if you were if you were asked to rescue people in some country, like I had to Google, uh, where would you start? I mean, what do you do? All you have is a cell phone and a few friendships. And I don't know where they are exactly or anything like that, but you just start. And um, I first, for me at this point, it was, this was probably the most impossible feeling I've ever had. I actually prayed. I got... I need your help on this one. Um, yeah, of course. I need you to guide me, bring people in my life. And and for two weeks, it was just one obstacle after the other to the point where I was just crying all the time. Like I couldn't get it done and neither could their their friend. Uh, and, but we just refused to give up because we love these girls so much. And finally, we had a breakthrough. Uh, I can't reveal all of my information about the U.S. military and the intelligence I was working with, but... Um finally, the Qatar government flew them out of that Taliban-controlled airport. The day after you saw all those people hanging on that big aircraft, uh, that's the next day when those girls were able to escape and flown safely to Qatar. Uh, from there, I was threatened uh, in many ways, from many different angles, never to speak on the media about it. Because there was a lot of—it had been on Facebook, and so in NBC, uh, I began to get interviews, and then I began to get threats to shut up. Like, be quiet. Do not talk about this. Threats from who? And it was, I really can't get into it, but believe me, uh, it was serious. And to the point to where I knew my kids would be in danger if I kept doing all the media. Wow. The Taliban and Afghanistan, all that's wow. not something to take lightly. So I thought about it all night one night. You know, am I going to take all these uh, requests from CNN and Fox and NBC and ABC? Am I, what am I? What should I do? Should I take care of myself and my children or should I? Should I speak up? And I and I realized uh, when the sun was coming up, I've got to speak up. This is exactly what I don't know what you would call them. Society wants yes. sometimes is for women to be quiet, yes, and not speak up. Don't speak up. Be silenced. Go wash the dishes, wash the tea cup, and 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 make the beds, and fold the underwear, and be quiet, and don't make a don't make noise, and don't try to make an impact. And I thought, no, I'm going to do every one of these. I don't care what it costs. I went to my attorney. I made up my will and, and I took all the media requests and I did it, for two, I did it for, for two reasons. One, because I'm not going to be silenced. And number two, I knew that other people in Afghanistan would know who to call and who to reach out to, to escape. And that's exactly what happened. Resources began to come, come together. NASA general counsel, some of the attorneys reached out to me, Yale Law School, some I mean, of your parliament, uh, uh, ambassadors, people everywhere, special forces people. Suddenly, teams began to come together to rescue all kinds of people. I wasn't the only one doing it. it, it it's, it's a straight out of a movie. The threats continue to come for me. I had to move out of my house. I had to uh, get the, some law enforcement involved. But isn't that what happens when all of us women go to the next level? But, you know, well-behaved women rarely make history. So I just kept on
0: That's so good.
1: And uh, the final group that I got out was, uh, I don't know, 60 or 70 Americans that our con- our nation, I mean, our government had abandoned. And these people had passports just like me. They had some homes in the United States just like me. And it was getting close to Christmas. And then we tried for a couple of months to get them out. And, you know, just I've never done anything so impossible and so many negatives every day. Of the, it won't happen. It won't happen. But finally, uh, the couple of Special Forces guys I was working with, we were in the Middle East most of the, most of the fall of last year, trying to get people out. I won't really say exactly where we were, but uh, positioned outside of Afghanistan. The Special Forces guys said, there's no way we can get these Americans out. We're going home. And we're on the next flight home. I said, thank you. I'm not leaving. If I was an American, if I'm the last American standing for these, these Americans, I am not leaving until these people get home. So there I was by myself. I can't do anything uh, except not quit. That's the only thing I could do was not quit. And so they were going to have the next flight out back to the United States. And I received a phone call about a day later from a man. And he, I never met him before. He said, I saw your, your post on Facebook and I have all the planes and all the money you need to get these Americans home. And it was for real. And this person was from, um, from Oklahoma where I'm from. So, it was for real. I called the Special Forces guys. They flew back into Afghanistan, into a Taliban-controlled area and the Taliban-controlled airport, gathered up all those Americans, got their vaccinations their COVID tests and all their paperwork done and flew those men out to, um, I mean, all those families back to, to New York. Unbelievable miracle. I, I've never seen anything like it in my life. Uh, I will never forget it. It was a lesson that just never, never quit. I'll Good. never give
0: up Allison, if someone on their journey um they know mm-hmm. that they're they feel called to do something um bigger than themselves, where do mm-hmm. you even begin when it comes to finding yes. that courage within you to get started, and what would be your number one um, piece of advice that you'd give to that individual?
1: I think you have to ask yourself, do you want to live and die in the same postal code you know first thing do you really Do you really want to have done nothing with your life? You know, is that what you want to be when you're 70 or 75? Is that, is that the feelings you want to have? Because I know that there's a book about a woman who took care of dying people for 13 years. And she wrote down their dying regrets, every single patient for 13 years. And the number one dying regret was I didn't do the things I wanted to do with my life because of other people's opinions. And, you know, I didn't want to be like that. I didn't want to have that dying regret. So That's number one. You have to decide, do I want to make an impact? And if so, you do have to step outside that comfort zone. And I'll be honest with you, every new thing I've done, I have felt totally stupid. I feel inadequate, shaky, embarrassed, afraid, you know, walking into a a reception with space people, feeling like I don't know who to talk to or who to walk up to. I don't belong here. I'm not good enough. And, you know, every expert was once a beginner. And you have to be willing to go through that awkward beginner stage at first, learning and and growing. But it's it's just that innate desire that, you know, I don't want to live and not really, really Um, live. What's
0: amazing to me to hear um, is that, like, someone could be listening to you and you're like, you're on the board of directors for Explore Mars, you're discussing space exploration and... You're still struggling with self doubt and mm-hmm. imposter syndrome and feeling like you belong. So that yep. doesn't go away, does it?
1: Mm-mm. Never goes away. Uh, it's a it's a voice that uh, I believe all. I don't know if men deal with yeah. it, but I believe women uh, I, especially I can deal with it. To that, that's why every day I have to inspire myself uh, internally and externally. You might say because I'm overcoming that that loop every day of not feeling confident. But you know what? After a while, you keep keep growing and growing in, in a certain new field you're in. And you begin to feel confident. You fe- begin mm-hmm. to feel better about yourself.
0: Okay. We're going to end the episode with something that is really fun. Uh, we're going to play a little game to end on a fun note. So I've got a okay. deck of cards here called Give Me Three. All right. And... What you need to do is basically speak before, you need to speak before you think, okay,
1: so. You know, that's going to be dangerous to her. We like a little bit of danger
0: on the show. I'm going to strap on my seatbelt. So I'm going to ask you a few questions and then just give me the first answer that comes to mind. Are you ready? Okay. Give me three excuses to jump the queue. I'm
1: going to miss my flight.
0: That's a good one. Uh
1: I can't think of three. I'm going to miss my flight. I'm going to miss my flight. I'm going to miss my flight.
0: Okay. Next question is give me three things women do better than men. We cook uh, better Mm -hmm. than men. We clean better than men. And uh,
1: we're more loyal than men.
0: Okay. And then let me ask you this final one. Give me three fashion items that you like, but look ridiculous on you.
1: Big necklaces. Uh, Apple watches are way too big for me. Really? And hats. Yes. They're too big on my arm. I have tiny little wrists and then hats. I look terrible in hats.
0: Okay. <laughs> Any kind of hat. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Allison. You've been such a good sport. Um before you leave the show, I'm sure everybody listening would love to connect with you. So where can everybody find you online?
1: I'm my social media is an open book. Uh, you can you can reach me on Facebook, Alison Renault, Instagram Allison Renault, AllisonRenault.com or AlisonRenaud at gmail.com. And um, I am deeply moved to help women and children uh, to become the best version of themselves. And so, you know, anything I can do to help, I'm here.
0: That's amazing. Well, it has been my joy and honor to have you on the show and um You are welcome to come and join us anytime because your life is like watching a movie. So I would love to have you anytime on the show. Thank you so much for today. Thank you, Sahar. Thanks for tuning in today. All the resources mentioned in the show are linked below if you're watching on YouTube and linked in the show notes if you're listening to the podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then I want to invite you to help us spread our message by choosing one of four ways. One, subscribe to the YouTube channel or the podcast. Two, leave a review if you're listening to the podcast. It really helps. Three, let me know in the comments below what the key takeaways were for you in today's episode. And four, share this episode with one friend who could use a little bit of courage today. And if you want to binge our episodes, may I suggest you watch this episode right here if you're watching on YouTube. That's it. Until next time, don't forget to live courageously and dare forward.